Welcome to a conversation with John Philpin. Each week, John cuts through the noise and fills your ears with interviews, stories, and most importantly, clarity. Clarity in our ever-changing and shifting world to put people first. Over to you, John. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever and whenever you are on this planet of ours. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever and whenever you are. This is Stuart Robbins, John Philpin's partner in a podcast series for People First. And today you're listening to a wonderful conversation with a truly remarkable man. He's a writer, longtime professor at Indiana University, winner of many awards, among them the Lannan Literary Award, the Guggenheim Foundation Award, and of course, one from the National Endowment of the Arts. His more than 20 books are highly recommended. My favorite is Staying Put, a series of essays on what it means to live in and with our home. He's talking, of course, about the Midwest, which I very much care for and have in common with him. If you want to know more about Scott, check him out at scottrussellsanders.com. I'll stop talking now. Let's just jump into that conversation, which I hope is as memorable for you as it certainly was for me. Well, and so you, you no doubt have noticed the emphasis in schools and politicians are constantly talking about STEM, right? S-T-E-M. So you got science, technology, engineering, and mathematics, and all wonderful stuff. But what's missing is uh, the A, and I, I subsume humanities under the arts, uh, the arts of living. Yes, yes. Uh, hi- hi- but history, philosophy, religion, languages, and so forth. Without those, and this gets back to Silicon Valley again, without forms of study, forms of knowledge, that actually address values as opposed to how to do things, but the why to do things or whether to do things. That's the domain of the arts and the humanities. And so I can see where the kind of proofreading vision that you can bring, but also the sense of syntax, the sense of clear communication and so forth that you can bring from your writing background and training and just interest that you could bring to the technical work by the same token, I think that if they have, if we had more artists and humanists and historians and philosophers involved in discussions about social media, for example, we would benefit from that. And so I don't want schools to say, okay, arts, we get rid of the art classes, which tends to be the first thing they cut, just as the football program is the last thing they cut. Yes. We need the arts in school. We need music in school. We need kids to learn history in school. We, we, we won't call it philosophy, but we, le- we need kids to encounter some of the great human ideas that different, have arisen in different cultures and different civilizations over millennia. Because otherwise, they leave school and they've got a number of technical skills, which are useful and important, but they don't have a sense of what to do with their life or what to do with the tools that their technical knowledge provides for them. And I, I, do th- I don't wanna 
pick on him in particular, but Zuckerberg seems to me almost a case study in somebody who is technically brilliant and humanistically childish. Yes. He, he doesn't, he doesn't, at least he doesn't manifest a sense that any tool from a, a hammer to Facebook, any tool for the internet can be used and in some hands will be used for damage and destruction uh, unless there is some governing ethic or 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 re regulation or other kind of constraint i've often found that in addition there are critical thinking skills that are occur in literature classes we had a debate class when i was at danville high school you know there were skills that actually provide a manner of interacting with other human beings and and as i went through my career and i talk a lot about this you know in some of the other interviews too the problems that occur in all of the companies that i worked in were not technological problems they're human problems oh my god you know yeah. technology if you have enough money and enough time you can solve a technological problem they are not insolvable what happens is when you don't have enough money or you're only given half the time, or the teams cross cultures and time zones and executives aren't speaking with each other and there's no decision-making process and there's no governance and there's no understanding that the people that you're talking to aren't picking up on what you're saying because communication was never taught to them. The hubris of all I have to do is X and they will automatically do Y because that's how good our product is. No, actually, that's not how human beings function. You know, what, what amazes me though, as we get farther along, and it is an ad a very adolescent industry. So one expects it to go through its cycles. You know, executives couldn't write a coherent sentence if their life depended on it. And it wasn't ever reinforced. It wasn't rewarded. It, they certainly aren't called and then suddenly they have to send a memo to the staff because of some bad thing that had happened and they need three people to help them. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's, you know, it's, it's pretty sad. On the other hand, I'm able to access a whole wide variety of information about you in preparation for this session that would have been almost impossible. No uh, question about it, no question about it. And so, yes, you know, I, I, I do internet searches multiple times a day for bits of information, for dates, for does uh, <laughs> one today was the word kerfuffle. I'm, this is for a book of short stories I'm finishing. My standard dictionary doesn't give a plural for kerfuffle. Oh, that's very interesting. I, I, I needed it to be plural for the, the sentence to work. But Merriam-Webster online says it's a perfectly straightforward S at the end, and you know. But otherwise, I would have had to had to either just just guess and act on my guess, which might which would have been correct as it turns out, uh, or I would have had to go to the library and you know get the big. Right. <laughs> well, I did just yesterday. The, there's this journal. They're doing 42 poems on 42 pages. Each poem has to have 42 words and the titles have to have 42 characters. And your bio even 
only 42 characters. They, you know, you, they give you a site to check the word count. And I was asked to send one in and the piece is about my grandmother's bathroom. When I was a child, the first time I saw six sided, those six sided white tiles, you know, beneath the bathtub is six sided hyphenated. I don't know. And does it count as one word or two? I don't know. Look it up. Took two minutes. <laughs> it is hyphenated. Yes, it is. Because it works as an adjective, right? Absolutely. So, yeah, yeah. Did you see a change over the course of your career in your students, for good or ill, as a result of the influx of technology? The good writers wrote better. Mm, interesting. And because it's a, it, it, it eliminates so much drudgery. True. You remember retyping papers, right? In high school and college. Or those carbons, if you had to copy. Oh, yeah, copy. right. And, and you get to a point where you really want to revise something, but that's going to add lines to a page, and you'd have to retype the subsequent pages. So after a while, you just kind of quit. I mean, that was my experience. I didn't start typing papers until I was perhaps a junior in high school. But through college, everything had to be typed. And it was by a manual typewriter. Mm -hmm. And so at a certain point, the, the sheer drudgery of having to retype things, you quit revising. But oh, absolutely. Okay, so, but my best students, the ones who really aspired to write well, not just to get an A, but to really, you could tell they really wanted to write well, like you and myself, like you and me, they could keep revising. There was no drudgery involved. It was just, it was just all intellectual work. There was no just pointless labor involved. On the other hand, the lazy students, and, and some fraction of, the, of, the, of a given class is always going to be lazy. It, it didn't have any effect on their writing. They were neater, and the spell check helped to eliminate some of their mistakes. A little bit, yeah. <laughs> but, but they still had homonyms, and they didn't know the difference between there and there. You know, T-H-E-Y apostrophe R-E, and, and uh, so they would end up with a contraction when really they wanted a possessive. So it didn't But it, it passed spell check, though. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Although increasingly, I notice I have to turn off all sorts of things on the Microsoft word processing because <laughs> they're constantly saying a, a, a comma here would be better. That's right. And I think, no, it wouldn't. No. <laughs> or or uh, uh, this word is often confused with that word. I know. And I'm using the correct word. <laughs> <I'm doing laughs> or if, you're, if you've got a character who actually speaks in a very broken intentionally broken fashion yeah. yes they, oh we're it yeah i just turn it off too it's, yeah it's, yeah it's really but at any rate a, a briefer answer to your question is i think on the whole students who wanted to write well and they have been enabled by the technology including the search dimension of it not just yes. the word processing yes. part to write better to write more cogent better informed papers, essays, and this is true for in the creative writing classes, and it's true in the essay expository prose. How about the rest of the faculty? Did you see a, was there a group of curmudgeons who wouldn't accept the technology and some who embraced it among your colleagues? I started using a computer full-time in 1979 in IBM, which was about as early as you could do it. It just seemed sensible to me. I had oh, been word processing was such a gift. Oh, really yeah, I, I had I started on a on a used 
small manual typewriter. And I used that through college. And actually I used it through graduate school. I typed my dissertation, which is 300 and some typed pages. Yeah, I had to type my times. master's thesis, right. And <laughs> there were typos that the faculty was really upset with. And it was like, I didn't, I went through it three times. Yeah. yeah. Well, after a while, one has memorized passages and you read the passage, it's in your head, but you don't notice that actually there's a word left out in the no, type right. version or, right. or there's that's a typo right. of, of some sort. So there probably were some older faculty members, meaning my present age, I'm 75 now, but uh, and that, who are still teaching. I have mm -hmm. colleagues in their 80s who are teaching, a couple of them, wonderful, brilliant teachers and still very good scholars. And I didn't really know the older faculty that much, but I suspect there were some who just said, well, handwriting is always good enough, then I would give it to the secretary. But there were there was a secretarial pool for faculty when I started teaching in 1971. People, I, I never did because I touched type. I learned to touch type in high school and I'd rather do my own work and proofread my own work. But but a lot of faculty members would, they'd write up a paper longhand and then they'd give it to a secretary to type up. And <laughs> the only friend I have whom I know still does that, not to a secretary, is Wendell Berry. Wendell, writes a beautiful hand, actually. And Tanya, sometimes his wife, uh, sometimes types for him. And actually, he talks with her constantly about his work, frequently about his work. But for about the last 10 or 15 years, he's hired a, a neighbor woman who's a, who, who does editing work, not to do any editing for him, but to type all of his manuscripts because his publisher needs a digital file. Right. And, uh, and Wendell writes everything in longhand and then has somebody else. But Wendell's 83 and, and is also a brilliant writer. And I think he deserves to <laughs> stick by his ways. I don't know. Do you know Frank Conroy? Have you ever met him? I, yeah, I know who he is. I've, yeah. never met him. I've only met him. He, he was a visiting faculty when I was at Warren Wilson. And he explained to us that his favorite writing position is on his back with a pencil and he folds the notebook so that he can grip it, you know, yeah. so that his, the line breaks <laughs> in his verse are not intentionally enforced by some poetic schema, but rather that's when the pencil was rolling off that rolled notebook that he was holding up to block the sun. But he left them as is often because they work for him. And I thought those kind of structures, you know, we, we've lost, uh, you know, the, the limitations often brought about a kind of innovation that, that we've lost. Or we've pushed innovation into some business category and people forget that, no, it's, it's creativity. It's the A that's missing from STEM. It's, it's the ability to think of three different ways of saying something before mm -hmm. you pick one. That's innovation. And there are some, I, I don't mean to you know, demean everybody in Silicon Valley. There's this um, wonderful guy who, who wrote the preface to my book actually, also an English professor before he went to, into high tech who said that a help desk person who becomes more efficient because they figure out a way of organizing their customer information, that's just as valuable a style of innovation 
as some breakthrough technology, but it's not recognized as innovation, mm-hmm. you know, to the same level as a brand new product, which I don't think actually has occurred in 20 years. And yeah, um, and any any brand new product, as as you well know, is the culminate is a temporary culmination of tens or hundreds or yes. thousands of previous human. Well, we stand on the shoulders of giants, don't we? Oh, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. and then we forget them, you know. I mean, going perhaps. all the way back to the invention of mathematics or the concept of zero, which is an Arab idea. Until there was a concept of zero, no, no nothing in modern computing would, would work, right? So, right. so there's, there's no such thing as, uh, as now, as creation that doesn't have any any predecessor, yes. right? Yes. If only if only language, you know, no writer, no matter how inventive he or she is, is still using an instrument that countless people over generations have enriched and honed and, and added connotations to and resonances to. So, yeah, I think our our how we understand creativity tends to be narrowly market-driven or yes. at least influenced, yes. influenced by that. My, I had a, my father who passed away many years ago. And I feel a, like I know him through your writing, uh, which is a very strange thing. But he was a classic person whose intelligence was not book intelligence, although he, he, he read and he could read. He's, he was certainly very literate. But what he preferred to read was, was a shop manuals, mm-hmm. you know, how to repair mm-hmm. X, Y, or Z. And he could look at any device. This, he began to have trouble once you had printed circuits. Uh-huh. But until you have printed circuits, he could look at any device, figure out how it worked and how to repair it. Uh, and that's a kind of intelligence that that is not sufficiently honored in our culture. One year I was visiting guest faculty member at MIT. This was back in the 80s. Actually, it was the year you got your, your MFA. It was 86, oh, okay. 87. Okay. And we rented a house from an MIT m- engineer. And when we got there to the house, they had actually left. We knew they were not going to be there when we arrived. And we moved our stuff in. And out by the curb for trash pickup were about four appliances that looked pretty new to me. Mm-hmm. One was, a, I remember one was a, a vacuum cleaner. And so I, I thought maybe they had just forgotten them somehow. I didn't quite understand why they were out there. Late, later, he said, oh, they're for the trash. And I said, well, why? He said, well, the, they don't work. And so I looked at the vacuum cleaner and I called him back and I said, it just needs a new plug. He said, really? And I said, yeah. I said, I'll just fix it. So he said he had, they were ordering a new vacuum cleaner so the house would have a vacuum cleaner for us to use. I said, no, 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 don't do that. I'll put a new plug on it. And later I asked him, I said, you know, pardon, I don't be rude or something, but you're an engineer. I mean, why didn't you do that? What He said, I'm not that kind of engineer. I said, what oh. do you do? He said, I design artificial blood vessels. 
which is a, a very interesting thing to do. And very interesting. To do. But, but, but I would think I would think that there's a similar kind of thinking involved. Sure. <laughs> but it's, it's a matter of how you apply your intelligence. And maybe it's also just a matter of time and money. Like, oh, well, it's easier. And I've got I can afford it. It's easier just to order a new one. But I, I always remembered that because my assumption was somebody drawn into engineering, he had to take a lot of math. He had to do all sorts of analytical thinking. Just look at the device and see where something seems amiss. And then assuming you can buy a part for it, which isn't always the case, but if you can just put it in. And uh, so I fixed all four of those appliances because I grew up in a household where it was, my parents were both were both children of the depression. They grew, they came of age, not, not children. They were actually in their twenties during the mm -hmm. depression. Mm -hmm. uh, they were born in 1916. So in 19, 1936, in the depths of the depression, they were 2021. 20, and their attitude was you do not throw out anything that can be repaired or be reused. Or Even be, the pieces would be valuable. Certainly. In some certainly. way. Yeah. Yeah. The junkyards, in the front yard or the backyard were actually warehouses. It looked tacky, but it was handy to be able to go out and take some parts, some, even if it was just a nut off a rust, a, a device that otherwise was not functional, but you didn't have to go to the nearest town to buy a nut to fix the thing you're working on. Anyway, we better do, we better do what you want to do. For oh, I'm, I'm perfectly happy with this. I'll tell you the, the thing that, as you were talking, I thought to myself, what if COVID had happened before we had any remote devices or black, just black and white TVs and Pong, if we were still back at that layer of technology where no one had a computer at home, you know, no one thought even about online anything, the net wasn't ubiquitous. So we would have either had many more ill children, which may have been the result, or if we had to lock down, an entire generation would have been a step or two behind for the rest of their lives, which is not to say that technology is serving children very well now. I don't think it is. And I think we're going to have a layer of mental health issues yeah. That lasts for a very long time. It's concerning because that's the one area I was, one of my interviews with was with a dean at uh, Cleveland Law School, and he spends a lot of time one-on-one -on -one with his remote supervisees because he's worried about them. You know, they aren't getting the social piece of the school right now, and it's such an important part of their growth at that stage of their lives. And I thought that was wise of him to do that rather than just not worry about it. And what's going to happen in corporate America where no one except maybe an overworked HR person is charged with that responsibility, the, the level of distress of an individual employee in making an adjustment, say going back to headquarters as opposed to working from home, will go unnoticed until it gets severe because no one thinks that way. You know, um, let's just get back to work. Let's just get back to the way things were. Well, we're all, we have all been traumatized by this. Some in mo modest ways, some in not so modest ways, many of which may not. 
I, I think the same adjustment that people had working from home by enforced regulation, it took people probably three months to adjust companies. My guess is they won't have the patience when everybody returns to work to give everybody three months to adjust because they'll think that's the natural state of affairs. And I, I will have, we'll see a lot of issues around that, I think. Well, and there, there's been triple traumas. The pandemic obviously is the most pervasive global in every county and every town. There have been cases in Antarctica, for God's sake. That's one, one of the traumas, and it's ongoing. Yes. The second trauma was the last four years of this presidency and the, and the, the, of the previous presidency and the ongoing disruption that it has, that it has, its legacy, the deep partisan antagonism. Well, then there's the economic recession, but the, the, so that's a big one as well. The, the businesses that have closed, some of which will never reopen. That's right. Many. And certain kinds of work that will not come back. That's right. That would be automated or robotized. Certain certain major sources of business, such as air travel, I don't think will ever return to its pre-pandemic level. Certainly it'll pick up, but it won't to the, it'll never be. And and frankly, I hope it is, this is the case. I I don't think this is unfortunate. I think it is fortunate if it never returns to the pre-pandemic level. But the the fourth one, because I've got the pandemic, the politics, the economic dislocation, but the the fourth one is the ramping up of global heating effects. The wildfires, the severe cold, the the very the blizzards, recurrent blizzards, and the fact that that, that these weather extremes and, and fire results from weather extremes, from, from drought and very high temperatures high ambient temperatures. These are affecting larger and larger stretches of the country. And of course they're affecting other other nations and nations that have even less means or maybe significantly less means than we do to respond to it. And their economies are less resilient even if they wanted to, right? Yes. So when, when Katrina, that tragic flooding event occurred, actually millions of people in different degrees, galvanized efforts to help New Orleans recover. And it's not recovered to this day, although it's come back a tremendous amount. But what happens when there, there are two Katrinas and three Katrinas and that's four right. Katrinas? That's right. And, and that's, of course, what's coming. That's, what's, that's what the climate disruption has in store for us. And whether it's uh, increased wildfires, rising sea levels, spread of epidemic diseases uh, as disease vectors can move more broadly with warming. These kinds of disruptions, which have been so far relatively minor and relatively localized, uh, are they going to become more and more widespread? Yes. And the, the kind of environmental refugees that we saw, we have seen coming out of Syria where a prolonged drought led to terrible hardship among agricultural people and the government either couldn't or wouldn't address their needs. 
And as a result, you get a civil war. And the people fleeing the civil war try to go elsewhere. Yes. And I remember one year, maybe five years ago, when there were something like 60,000, 60,000 people trying to get into Europe from Syria. And it paralyzed all of Europe. It caused riots in cities That's in right. Europe. 60,000 potential refugees. It was a flood of, uh, of humanity, not resources, but it was a flood. Yeah, yeah. And again, that kind of displacement, uh, environmental, and often it, 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 it ends up looking like an economic dislocation, but the yes. e economy, for example, agriculture fails because you've got a prolonged, prolonged drought. And you've got, you've got refugee camps now that have almost become permanent yes. places of location and habitat for people. And these are cities larger than many cities in the surrounding areas yeah. without any infrastructure, without, you know, without anything. And this is how that, those 200,000 people are living now, not just for six months. <laughs> Yeah, this well, there are where people, they live. There are people in uh, Palestine who've been living in camps. Thank you. Yeah, yes. they have children yes. and grandchildren in those camps. Yeah, and that and that's a vision of a more and more displaced future. So, uh, <laughs> when I when I give public talks, which I haven't been doing except virtually for the last. 12 months as you Although you've got one on the, what is it? You've got one coming up soon, a couple of them, don't you? On your Oh, I, I have talks, but they're all online. All right. They're all online. Uh, well, actually, this 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 circle back from some of these darker themes to to what technology has made possible. I you're you're quite right that without the technology, how people, businesses, schools, how they would have coped with the pandemic would have been dramatically different. On the other hand, because we have this technology, many things that I would not ordinarily do or be asked to do right. have been made possible. A couple of small examples. I think it was last October, I received an email from a woman in Eastern Pennsylvania who runs a watershed protection group and they like to organize events for their for children to make them more aware of how important clean water and protecting wetlands is. And I have a little book that called Crawdad Creek, a children's book. And she asked whether at lunchtime one day, would I, on, by way of Zoom, would I read that book aloud to children? And the children could turn it, tune in with, with help from their parents. And I did. I just read a children's book to probably 60, How lovely. Or 60 or 70 kids who were, you know, you can see the little faces all over the screen. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And they're sitting there all ages, but probably four to eight, that age range. And they would never, without Zoom and without the pandemic, they would never have asked, you know, what would I do? Do it by phone or something yeah, like yeah. that? Right. right. But it's just, it's, it's a kind of simple event. It was easy for me to do. And of course, it's not anything I would ever ask money for or accept money for. Or I, I give a pep talk to uh, land trust organizers for their, their annual meeting, which is virtual. So I did, did that. And the interviews I've done, 
in the past, for the most part, have been in person. People have come to my house and and uh, we, they sit down with their their their. We still say tape recorder, but of course, yes, it's, yes, it's digital. We talk, yeah, we talk about um, you know in cinema we talk about tape, but it's, not, it's film. It's not film anymore. Well, so we still it, say dial the phone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, as opposed to punch the keys. Yeah. At least we don't say crank the handle. It's yeah, just, that's true. We got we got past that, right? But I, I think I know one of your strong interests from your first letter to me is in place. Yes, and, well, it's the thing that first first drew me to your writing, and then as I we started doing this podcast, there is a naturally symbiotic relationship between place and the people that live there where they should take care of each other. I loved the passage in, in way of imagination where you actually help people understand if you don't love the earth, think of how you love the person you're sleeping with or that how you love children's laughter or take that feeling and apply it here. It's not a new concept. It's just taking what your body knows how to do this. Your mind and heart know how to do this. You're just not too used to doing it in this way. And it, it reminded me of a couple of the other passages in imagination that really, I think they're a gift, but they're also on a certain level identifying the mechanism of what in the old days, the old school of writers like to believe was just, it was the magic that they did. You know, John Cheever and John Updike would go into their office and come out at five o'clock and magic would occur. There is a usefulness to the kind of imagination that you talk about that can help bring about, I was, I was telling Someone asked me the other day, well, you know, what do you mean by this? And I said, well, if, if as a writer, I have developed a technique that I could teach to graduate students, imagine yourself in a four-walled brick room with no doors. You're a writer, and you're going to write a story about the child that's playing outside that wall because you hear the sound of them laughing. And it's a very compelling story. You know how to write that story. You could tell it first person from that child's point of view. That's an exercise in empathy that a lot of readers, I think, at a certain point take for granted. They may not act, execute it well on the page, but the capacity to imagine, tell the story from the dog's point of view is the joke, right? Is something, if I had to, I probably could take that skill and then think to yourself, why are you not applying it to the family next door? Why are we not applying it to the people coming across our southern border? If we're able to look at the world through other people's eyes and write about it, how can we not exercise that in our lives? And, that, and of course, human frailty and limitation, people are not as good as we would like them to be. Certainly, I've learned that. Nonetheless, there is a, a purely... It's not an ABC, it's not a recipe. There's no Duncan Hines for imagination. I'm not trying to make it that simplistic. But there is a thing that some of us do that can be taught, that could be applied 
to real people as opposed to the imaginary ones that we're talking about all the time in our stories. But somehow we forget that. Well, we, America as a country has, has had a, a pragmatic orientation from the beginning so that novels, for example, were, were regarded as something that women read because they had superficial minds and they don't think about the hard problems of the world. And they, and don't, they don't work. And they don't so they make the money, right? Right. They don't make money. They, they, they uphold morals and raise our children. Uh, I mean, that's all a caricature, of course. And, and certainly writers like Mark Twain were, were, and to this day are, tremendously popular. But our country does not, does not see fiction or storytelling of any sort as a way of cultivating understanding of the other. Yes, Which, but that's of course what it is. That's we. Anyone who takes who, who enters a story as a reader, you enter a story, you are indirectly inhabiting the minds, the hearts, the actions, the bodies of other people. And it's some the, people, some people try to read only about themselves. Their 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 kind of things. So teenagers right. only run to read novels about teenagers and so forth. But even then, the teenager that they read about is not going to be exactly like they are. And he's not real. And yet you can envision him or yeah. her. Yeah. And it's that it's that cultivation of empathy through imaginative engagement with an other. Yes. That I do think carries over and can generate compassion. It's not automatic, but it, it can nurture compassion because when we have a livelier, richer awareness of what it might be like to inhabit a person different from ourselves, different gender, different race, different age, different nationality, religion, et cetera, when we cultivate that ability to enter imaginatively into that other life, then we are bound to feel more sympathy with what with the struggles, with the suffering, with the aspirations, the fears of that other, uh, which is another reason why the arts and humanities need to be preserved as part of, you know, not squeezed out with by STEM. Absolutely. Because, yeah, because the the human imagination, the the capacity to feel empathy for other people, as well as I would say for other creatures, for other non-human animals. Yes, it is that capacity is distinctive to human beings. I don't know if you know at all the work of Aldo Leopold, the great uh, the Sand County Almanacs, his best-known book. Anyway, he was. He was invited in the 1930s to give a speech at the dedication of a statue that was being erected in Wisconsin where he lived in memory of the, uh, of the passenger pigeon. So the passenger pigeon had gone extinct in 1909. And so this is a memorial about this, this bird that had at one point been the most abundant bird species on the planet. And then it disappeared. I remember hearing about this. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Mainly because of destruction of habitat and also wholesale destruction of flocks. Yes. And it turned out to be a species that needed a, a certain 
population size in order to reproduce. Yes. It is, if you didn't, it, it, some fish species are the same. Unless you have a certain mass, it doesn't trigger the hormonal changes that lead to, you know, courtship. And anyway, so he's giving a speech, a short little speech. And he says, we are the only species who would have been capable of extinguishing such a vast, rich biological phenomenon as the passenger pigeon. And he paused. He said, we're also the only species that would regret doing so and build a monument to their memory. <laughs> and he says, and both of those things are true about us. And we have to remember both of those things about us. Yes, yes. we're capable of, that's what, in the, in the way of imagination, I talk about our being a, a paradoxical species. We are tremendously destructive. We know that. We're also tremendously creative and generative and we have that capacity. We're the only species that, at least in a significant factor, would ever try to restore a river that we had trashed. That's right. Or re re replant a, a prairie that we had plowed under. Or send, take, bring wolves back to Yellowstone from which we had extirpated them. We are the we are the, the the creatures who are capable of doing and and are in fact doing tremendous damage to ecosystems, to other species, to one another, and also a species that has a vast capacity to remedy those very things that we do. That's right. You know, and and we need to we need to we need advocates of the second right. We need advocates. We need the stories about restoration, about reconciliation. Every day's news, you see it, I see it. Every day's news is about this group against that group and this partisan divide and this kind of divide and because it makes for good drama mm -hmm. and it, it grabs attention and sells newspapers and airtime and uh, eyeballs to the internet. But it's not the deepest truth about us as a species the deepest no, in, in fact it's very superficial if you live it that is level. yeah so i mean one little one little invitation i make to students who get very down on humans i said uh, do you ever walk in the sidewalks downtown yeah how many times do people knock you off the sidewalk into the street you think nobody's ever done that i say why is that why is that if we're such terrible animals and all we care about is ourselves and, you know, we're just out for ourselves, why does anybody ever bump into you on the sidewalk? It's because we actually are a social species and we're pretty good at getting along. And that's most right. of the time, most of the time, we get along really well. And but that's that what those standards... That doesn't make news. That doesn't make news. Right? right. That's right. Uh, those standards and norms are not restrictive. They are collaborative. Yeah. And there is a difference, but when we take them for granted and we forget about them because we do them so instinctively, they can be disrupted by somebody who intentionally sure. wants to. And sure. that's the risk, right? Because we're, it's, we're as vulnerable to that kind of disruption as we are to a virus that maybe we saw coming, but didn't have the institutional wisdom to respond quickly until it got obvious. And I often think that we as writers, I mean, the last time I probably wrote something with clear polemic as intent was during the Vietnam War. 
you know. And that was very much a time where many writers were taking every skill that they had in order to employ on behalf of, you know, the peace movement. And there are so many writers I know who aren't engaged or who have been frightened away from being engaged. They felt, you know, particularly over the last four years, they would not get into a political argument because, you know, they shrink away from it. They're worried that their poor little artistic soul doesn't have the, you know, the means to, to get through an argument like that. And I think, no, as a writer, you should be out there soldiering. And that's why I love some of the things. It's as if you're saying, if you can do this, if you have this amazingly powerful force called it an imagination, and you're actually honing it as a writer, doesn't that give you an edge in making your point and organizing together and figure out what can we do about this? Don't we want to speak on others' behalf who don't have this skill? And it's become such a solitary profession, I guess, that unless you're teaching, and certainly it wasn't in grad school for me, we, you know, it was a very social, I mean, it was a two-week residency and then go back and, you know, write for six months and then you go back for the two-week residency. So it was very intense because we all had jobs, but there was a social aspect to it. Whereas now, I don't know, I've, I've spoken to a couple other writers about that. We have our families, but since I moved to Danville, you know, being alone in this apartment by choice is very different than being alone in this apartment by mandate. Mm -hmm. My daily behavior is the same. My focus on my writing is the same before COVID and after. But something has been wrong about it over the last eight or nine months because it was imposed from outside. I don't have a problem on a daily level being alone, but it has felt less healthy <laughs> than it did before. Yeah, again, to go back to the environmental issues that I, I brought up earlier, mandated sheltering of one form or another or displacement of one form or another is going to become more and more common because of our disruption of natural systems. We see that in Texas right now with the, the, the breakdown of the electrical system, of the water supply system, of, of any form of coherent government. They'll get back on their feet, but a number of people have died. A lot of people have suffered. And the people displaced by fires in California and Oregon and Washington State and Idaho and so forth, those kinds of mandated displacements, people leave their homes because they don't have homes anymore, they get burned down or they get flooded out, uh, or people who lose their jobs because of weather-related events, droughts and so forth, those are gonna become more and more com commonplace. If we had all been sheltering in place because there was some tyrannical regime that Example. could be overthrown or could be challenged, but you can't challenge a virus. You know, you can take precautions against it. That's right. Uh, and even, even there, 
the, the previous administration discouraged, actively dis, at the top level, discouraged people from taking sensible precautions against it, like wearing a mask, for example, or keeping socially distanced. Again, it would be very, very, very different if, if an authoritarian regime had confined us to our homes or said, you can't fly. The airplanes are flying, but you can't fly because you're, you're an unapproved uh, That's right. passenger. It would have a very, very different emotional effect and no doubt would generate a violent response collectively. I mean, not if it's just aimed at a few individuals, but if it's aimed at millions of people, right. there, would, there would be resistance. But it's in the nature of natural curves, such as a, a pandemic or wildfires or floods or rising sea levels. It's in the nature of a natural uh, curb on human behavior that we can feel helpless or we can feel hopeless. Uh, we can feel deeply discouraged because there's no target. Uh, there's no regime that you can point to and say, if, if only we change this regime, this problem would go away. Uh, we're, we're the regime. I mean, we collectively, the impact that we humans are having on the planet, we're the regime. We, we've met the enemy and it is us, you know, and the old again, we're not, it's not because we're evil. Nobody gets up in the morning and thinks, hmm, you know, how can I create more environmental disruption? There's certainly maybe, maybe some do, but not. Well, not, some know they're doing it and say, but God damn it, I'm making a lot of money in the process. Right. That's right. And I got a lot of power and a lot of prestige in the process. And I'm going to keep doing it because I can. I can buy my way out of any problems that arise and I can buy my family's way out of any problems. That because arise. if the market is the solution and provides the system where things are fixed and I'm making a lot of money, this must not be wrong because the market wouldn't allow it if it were wrong. And that yeah. whole value system sends you in a very weird direction. Yeah. yeah. And anyone who sincerely believes that the market is able to make moral or ecological decisions is profoundly diluted. And I think, actually, I think the smartest people don't believe it for a minute. They just know it works for them. Right. It, yeah. No matter how many other people suffer and, and no matter how much the earth suffers and our fellow creatures suffer because of what the market is doing, they can rationalize it for themselves. But nobody who's beyond maybe fourth grade or fifth grade could actually believe it, I think. Although there's, there's something to be said, and I think it's true societally as well as individually, denial can be an incredibly powerful self-defense for the bad news of the world. Yes. And when you're, you become so accustomed to not thinking about those people there, then they don't exist anymore in your head. You're shopping and you're taking care of your kids and you're not doing anything bad. You're not doing anything wrong. You're actually volunteering and donating to Habitat for Humanity. And But there's a, a layer of denial wrapped around you for problems that have felt too big and too indirect to be. And you're not going to go protest children in cages. So I'm going to forget that that's still a problem that they're still in those cages like they were a year ago. People will argue with you saying, surely that can't be true because their, their insulation 
from truly distressing things, which has all sorts of understandable reason behind it, gets in the way of actually acting. You know, um, this brings us back to to technology indirectly. Yes, it does because we are aware of needs and suffering. Even if we're not trying, even if we're not following the news, we can't be completely unaware of what's happened in Texas or what's happened at the border. Any more so than Facebook engineers are completely unaware that there are some people out there taking advantage of the system. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So, you know, the classic gospel teaching, Christian gospel teaching, of, of which I talk about in the book, In the Way of Imagination, about love your neighbor as yourself. And that was a teaching given when literally your neighbor was somebody you could walk over and touch, right? And that's all the neighbors you knew about were the ones that were in reach. You might have, some of them might have been unclean, but according to your code and Others might have been scary and so forth, a different religion, but but they were all tangible and they were within sight. You could walk, mm-hmm. you could walk around the circle of everybody you th- could think of as your neighbor. But see, we're now suddenly neighbors, potentially, of whatever it is, 7.6 billion people. We're also neighbors of future generations because we we know enough about ongoing effects of of things that are happening now, global heating, for example, that anybody who's the least bit thoughtful is aware that those those are also neighbors of ours. They're they're chronological neighbors. And then we also are aware because of the rates of extinction and habitat loss that our animal neighbors are in jeopardy. the practical problem, well, it's, it's a practical, but also a psychological problem, is that nobody can can hold all those neighbors in mind and heart. Uh, and one doesn't have to be a hypocrite to say, okay, I'm trying to raise my kids properly. You know, I give to Habitat for Humanity. I volunteer on Saturdays. I can only do so much. Right, yeah, right. Right. Um, so it's a dilemma. And a lot of people, and I'm one of them, live with a chronic sense of guilt because there are things that you know need doing, even in your own community, let alone beyond your own community, need doing that that I could drop what I'm doing now and I could attend to that, you know, or I could not buy this thing that I'm contemplating buying and I could use that money and I could buy that, which would be for somebody who needs this way more than the thing I was thinking of buying. Uh, and the the challenge is to try to be humane and compassionate within the sphere that you actually can yes. affect. And I do think we have, in our closing minutes, I'll throw this out to you and you can let me know what you think about this. There is an opportunity. I'm not sure we're going to take full advantage of it. But I think we're on the eve of something that could be magnificent or at least not horrible, (laughs) which is that as we return to a somewhat normalized life, the inclination will be to leave it behind. That was a horrible year. Let's just move on, right? Let's not worry. But when you think about it, 
the entire civilized world has undergone COVID at almost the same time to almost the same degree. And I can't think of the last time, maybe World War II, where someone in London is going through exactly what you feel you're going through here in San Francisco because of Pearl Harbor. And now you're thinking in a similar mindset, whereas before you didn't. Well, it's all over the world, in all of the cultures. We have all gone through this thing together and we now have that in common with each other. And we could use that or at least acknowledge it as a, yes, there may be differences. You may speak a different language, but you know what my last year has been like. And I know what your last 12 months has been like wherever you are living. And it hasn't been fun, but it has provided an opportunity to understand that we're not so different. And the same would be true for employees returning to the workplace. All of us have gone through that. And there's an opportunity for, I think, wise business leaders, professors, leaders of any kind of institution that wants to return to normal, to do it just a little bit differently by keeping in mind that we were all in this together. And we don't have to lose that feeling when we all get back to a little bit more secure place. I think that's a really important feeling to preserve. And I think you're right that we have these shared circumstances, again, more severe in many other places, even than our own country, despite our astronomical mm-hmm. case rate and death rate in this We've country. always been good at numbers. We've yes. always been good at numbers. Yeah. Uh, but despite that, the severity varies from place to place, but it is a reminder of our common humanity. Yes. And the, the the term global citizen, which has been thrown around in the past, of course, and some people think that means you fly around the world and visit your office in Hong Kong and your office in London and your office in New York and you're a global citizen. That's a very trivial understanding of what it means. I think that especially, again, with global environmental realities and global heating is global. It's not local. It's global. And this rising sea levels happen on all coastlines. They're not limited to this nation or that nation or this hemisphere or that hemisphere. But to be aware that we are literally a global species and that we do have things in common, profound things in common, regardless of these very important and rich differences of language and ethnicity and, and religion and so forth, we have profoundly important things in common. And the challenges of the pandemic are a a drastic, a tragic reminder of that. That's one thing that I hope does come out of the pandemic and also doesn't get forgotten quickly. Yes, Uh, because we're so prone to leaving the things behind. Yes, Uh, yes. I, I can't tell you how many arguments I've had with executives who want to move on from a difficult thing rather than doing the postmortem, do the lessons learned, try to do it better, a little bit better next time. I just don't want to even think about it anymore. It was such a nightmare. Well, you know, we have a missed opportunity there and there are a lot of those. And, and the only looking forward people, though they may be financially in better shape than I, so kudos for that. It's not just doomed to repeat. It's not the cliched thing. It's that at moments when you have an opportunity 
to really expand a humanistic gesture outward. We don't because we forget that it's an opportunity because we're not looking at where we were versus where we are. We're just so glad it's over <laughs> and, well, and we'll miss it. We'll miss it. So one other thing I want to pick up, which in many ways is a compliment to the global common humanity awareness is it reinforces the importance of the local importance of the local because see what we're doing now is very satisfying that is we've got this digital electronic yes. yes and even though you and i happen to be about two hours apart our signals are going to satellites and around the globe and so forth and you could be across town and they'd still go to a satellite before they get to you oh i remember telling my boy when he first got his phone and his buddies were in the back seat and they were texting each other yeah. that their messages were first going two miles up into space and then coming back down yeah. the look on their face was like you're insane dad does it go for me <laughs> yeah <laughs> well so so but of course what if you ask friends what they most miss they'll say hugging my friends Yes. They'll say, listening to live music in presence, going to a theater, going to a restaurant, a baseball hanging out, game, hanging yeah. out in the park, slapping one another on the back and telling jokes. In other words, the, the most local intimate things, which the digital is, has been a, an ingenious uh, surrogate for. Yes. Uh, so we 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 talk with our friends, our children and grandchildren in Washington D.C. by Zoom, and I'm I'm grateful every time we we use the technology, but nothing would replace actually being physically present with them and having them crawl in your lap and read a book to them. Yes. There's no substitute for that. So, just as I I hope, and you said it very well, I hope that the whole planet having contended with this virus and the deaths and the losses and the illnesses and the stress on healthcare and on, on workers. It's the first time the entire planet has shared a condition in this way. Yes. Just as I hope that makes for a richer sense of our common humanity. I ho also hope it makes people treasure even more deeply the direct human contact that's only possible in the local, yes. where people can go and hear live music performed by people who are in front of them. Uh, the, the, the pandemic and the necessity of going virtual has prompted a tremendous amount of creativity on the part of choral groups and orchestras and performers right. and poets right. and so forth to use this medium to, to somehow keep the, their art available, but all of them will tell you they cannot wait until they can be on a real right. stage with a That's real right. live audience in front That's of right. them or uh, play in their guitar in somebody's living room and pass the hat and so forth. They can't wait for that more direct, intimate human connection to resume. That's the normal that I, that I aspire to get back to, not weekend flights to Las Vegas to gamble, you know, that kind of normal, which people say, boy, well, I can't wait till I can do that again. Yeah, somehow I don't see you doing that. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's not, <laughs> that's not the normal. The normal I, 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 have, I want is to be able to stand on the sidewalk with a neighbor and not wear a mask and, 
and and you know be able to slap them on the on the shoulder and and ask how their kids are doing and so forth. That's the normal that I'm hungry to get back to. And I hope it makes people feel more, more, more people feel more committed to nurturing their local life. I know this is a strong theme in your own writing and your own thinking to not to cut oneself off from the whole planet of culture and information and art. And that's wonderful. But to say, but right here, people make art here, people cook here, you know, people tell jokes and stories here. And I want to, I want to contribute to the life of my community and enrich it yes. uh, emotionally and artistically. Uh, so I think the having the globe on one end and the local on the other end are two things that may, two dimensions that may benefit, I hope will benefit. I call the it uh, the local piece is that I think we've lost our ampersand. There's a, that connecting principle that was a default. We just know if we went to a bar, turned to the guy next to us, we could have a conversation. We can't do that anymore. It's been taken away from us for a period of time. We lost that piece of punctuation, that API between systems, you know, uh, the, the channel, the connector. And once it's made present again, A, appreciated a little bit more. <laughs> <laughs> rather than taking it for granted, B, you'll have a moment probably once a day for those three months of adjustment in the new normal where there will be something good from the previous year that you could move forward into the new era, but it would have to be a conscious decision. It's not going to come along otherwise. It's going to get left behind. And then we'd have to learn it all over again. Can we hold on to a couple of those things when we get our ampersand back, you know, so that it's not just this or just that? So um, I think you're absolutely right. Yeah, obviously leadership at all levels can help in holding on to the valuable lessons. And not to try to draw too sharp a distinction between administrations, but when the new president goes on television and speaks very movingly about a half million Americans have died from this disease. Uh, is, it's a reminder that leaders can play a role as peacemakers, as reconcilers, and just as reminders of what decent human behavior and compassion is like. And similarly, business executives who appreciate that their, that their workers, their employees have been traumatized in this past year, and that it's gonna take an adjustment to return to something much more in-person, right. in-office right. or in-plant kind of work. Teachers who realize, and I know all thoughtful teachers do realize that how hard this has been on children of all ages, maybe hardest of the very youngest and of adolescents, who are the ones that most need their peer groups uh, to be really fully emotionally. And they're in developmental stages where that was a portment and it's not something you can just do three years later and have it fit. Yeah, and the women, millions of women who disproportionately have lost jobs or have had to choose, you choose your family or your job. 
but you've got to oversee your kids' schooling because they're doing their schooling from home or half the time they're at home. And those millions of women, some of whom want to get back in the workforce once their kids can be in school, we need, again, we need there to be employers who are aware of these really hard choices that women had to do stepping out of careers and so forth and and on and on. Local merchants who need our support and restaurateurs and so forth and need our our support and the, the healthcare staff, all of whom should be given a long vacation and so on. So it, it, it's going to require to hold on to the lessons, the good lessons of the pandemic, which is of course not over, but it's certainly, we certainly seem to be in the last, I would say quarter of it or third of it, uh, the tapering down phase. Uh, I hope that's the case. To hold on to these lessons is going to require artists to, who, who think about it as you do, uh, teachers, uh, employers, political leaders, religious leaders, and yes. in particular religious leaders whose religion doesn't is is not involved in denouncing other ca- yes. Categories, yes. 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 categories of people, yes. but actually embracing different categories of people. Uh, so there's lo- there's no shortage of work to be done. Correct. And and imagination, just to come back to that theme, it's imagination and enables us to not be trapped in our present condition, whether that's, that's right. a that's condition right. of political divide or racial divide or environmental uh, devastation. Uh, it, it, we are not trapped so long as we can use our imagination and inform our compassion about better ways of living with one another and uh, better ways of leading our lives on earth. We look forward to you joining us next time. And if you found this interesting, please do share the podcast. All the links referenced today are in the show notes. If you have any questions or comments, please do not hesitate in connecting directly with John Philpin. Stay safe and stay well.